You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by ZeroMo, a non-profit initiative helping transition to battery-powered lawn and gardening equipment and electric vehicles using 100% renewable energy. Hello and welcome to the Driven Podcast. Happy New Year to all our listeners. It's 2019 and this is our first podcast of the year and it promises to be a very interesting 12 months. Maybe the electric vehicle industry in Australia and the uptake of electric vehicles will finally start to take off as we see more moderately priced vehicles, um, although they obviously still have some way to come. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that Australia is um, trailing the much of the rest of the world in the uptake of electric vehicles. Uh, we don't see that many on our roads. We see a few. We're starting to see a few, a bit more infrastructure, and we're starting to see local, state and federal governments talk a bit more seriously about what's needed to encourage this transition. But while the uptake of electric vehicles has been slow, there's been some remarkable things happening in Australia in the EV sector. And one of those remarkable success stories has been a Brisbane-based company, Tritium, which has specialised in building charging stations and particularly fast charging electric vehicle stations and has grabbed an extraordinary share of the market throughout the world. So. Australia's probably got the lowest uptake of electric vehicles, but many of the other countries that are using electric vehicles are using tritium technology, and that's pretty exciting. So I'm actually delighted to introduce to you James Kennedy from Tritium. He is the co-founder and chief technology officer. James, have I got that right? That's correct. Well, look, thanks for joining us, and um, Happy New Year to you, and um, all the best for 2019. Um, do you agree it's going to be a bit of a, um, a watershed year for electric vehicles in Australia? Uh, it's certain, certainly looking that way. Um, it's been fairly slow going until this point. Um, uh, I very much agree with your introduction there. Um, uh, you, you see this when we speak to people overseas. Previously, you used to have to... Uh, you'd have to do two sales pitches. The first one was convince them that electric cars were going to be a thing, and then you could start talking about charges. And uh, it's quite refreshing overseas now in US and the Europe um, that you don't have to have that first conversation. Everybody knows that electric cars are, are a thing, and they're not five or ten years away. They're happening here right now. Unfortunately, in Australia, you still most of the time have to have that first conversation to convince people that electric cars aren't just some weird thing for the hippies. Can you explain that? Um, it's it's because there's there's so few cars here. They're not a common thing on the road. They're they're not something that people see every day, and so. Uh, they're still regarded as glorified golf carts or it's just that most people just don't know what yes. possibilities are out there. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm fascinated to find out a bit more about where we're going with the technology, but let's start with a start. Let's start with a start. Let's start um, with how Tritium was founded about 10 years ago. Tell us, tell us what happened, what you were doing beforehand and, and how you came about this idea that a couple of blokes from Brisbane could um, carve a niche in, um, in this new sector. Right, a uh, bit longer than 10 years ago, actually. We actually started in 2001, but uh, it, we were part-time for the first few years. Um, 
we started out racing solar cars together at university. So the Sunshark solar car at the University of Queensland as undergrad engineering students. Um, you, so, you, you better tell us who your partner was. That's right. So that's Dave Finn and Paul Sernia. That's mm -hmm. the other two co-founders. And uh, Dave and myself did, did a lot of work on the electronics for that solar car. Uh, it had run a race before we were involved with the team. And uh, when we started getting involved, we redesigned the electrical system. And one of the key components there was the motor controller or motor inverter. So a piece of power electronics that converts high voltage DC from the battery to three phase AC to drive the motor. And uh, we, we had one of the few in the race that didn't blow up on a regular basis. So, uh, <laughs> so, so was, it, was this the Dale into um, Adelaide race? That's correct. The World um, Solar Challenge. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So that's the solar car race. Um, so every two years, it's on again this year. Um, Darwin to Adelaide, you you start driving in the morning, you, you finish at, I can't remember the exact time, five o'clock at night, wherever you are on the side of the Stewart Highway, you, you pull over and camp and <laughs> and you start driving again at a certain time the next morning and it's the first one at Adelaide. So in some ways, it's an incredibly simple event, but in, in every other way, it's it's incredibly complicated. And, 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 and throw in the, um, the, the intense competition from all these students. And uh, um, yes, I, I, I can imagine, yeah, quite, quite an exciting event. Yeah, so um, shortly after, uh, it was probably just after we were in fourth year or just after we'd finished university, uh, actually got in uh, the University of New South Wales solar car team got in touch and said they'd like to buy one of our motor controllers. And uh, it was incredibly, you know, crazily in hindsight that was enough for us to start a business on a customer so, yeah yeah <laughs> one customer so wow. um yeah we we started that it was part-time uh i had a real job and dave and paul were doing their phds but uh we ticked along under under dave's parents house and started selling motor controllers to solar car teams and when did that evolve into fast charging or charging stations technology it was probably more like 2009 2010 i think um so our solar car power electronics had evolved into higher power power electronics typically we we're selling them into the home ev conversion market mm -hmm. um but during there we developed a, a high power liquid cooled motor inverter and that formed the core basis of a the power electronics for a fast charger, a DC fast charger for electric cars. It's extraordinary. And you now have what percentage of the world market? About, I think it's in the 20s, isn't it? 20%? Yeah, it's around there. I mean, uh, well, it depends how you define world market. So uh, if you ignore China, um, it tends to be a, a, close, a fairly closed market with lots of local competition. Uh, but if you go by the uh, rest of the world, yeah, 15 to 20% around there somewhere. And so, and you've matched and even beaten some of the big electronic companies in the world um, to this market? I'd say so, um, yeah. What's, what's been the advantage there? Is it just because you're a small company and you've got free thinking and you can do things quicker and adapt better? There certainly would be an aspect to that. Um, one of our key things is the liquid cooling in the in the power electronics that... Uh, that's a technological advantage that lets us have a, a much smaller piece of charging equipment than our competitors. 
and uh, also it means that it can be a completely sealed electronics enclosure. So although that doesn't really sound like that much of a big deal, when you're deploying these things out in the outside for the next 15 or 20 years, you, you don't want worries with grass and snow and insects and all the other sort of problems. And having a completely sealed electronics enclosure solves those issues. Right, so you've actually been able to deliver a a more efficient um, and longer lasting, and I guess because of that, um, I'm, I'm sort of sticking my neck out here, a cheaper product. Um, probably more, not more cost effective. Yeah, probably. Um, it's also, I mean, you know, blowing our own trumpet here, but it also looks good. Um, most of our competitors are a big, ugly, rectangular steel box, not the sort of thing you'd want to have out the front of your cafe um, or the front of your business, whereas ours looks good. So that's it important. stands that's, that's out from the crowd. That's important, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it is. And we put a lot of thought into that when it was designed and a lot of thought into the how the user interface works and how the, the driver interacts with the charger. Um, and that, I think that has made a very big difference. Mm. So tell, tell us, what, what, what's your standard product then? What, what, what's your, sort of your, your, your biggest product? Um, where are we at now with fast charging stations? So... There's a major shift happening right now, I would say. Um, depends how you define major product. Uh, certainly the largest number we have sold and probably continue to sell at the moment is our 50 kilowatt charging. So that's our VFIL RT. Um, that's, that's been the default standard for the last five, seven years, something like that. And uh, that, that was a fast charger when you had the first generation electric cars, the IMEVs and the Leafs. Um, mm -hmm. with a small battery pack you're talking 20 25 minute charge but these days you know you've got 90 to 100 kilowatt hour cars that's a two hour charge on a 50 kilowatt charger you, you can't right. really call it fast so we've got oh, i think it's well over two and a half thousand of those charges deployed worldwide but these days the the latest up and coming thing and definitely the way of the future is what's known as hpc for high power charging and that's in 350 kilowatt and possibly higher type ranges wow and you're developing those products uh yeah correct they're being deployed at the moment so um, what does 350 kilowatt allow you to do then presumably um power a big battery very quickly yeah that's right so I mean, talking about charge times to full is always problematic. It, you know, lithium battery, well, any battery really tapers off the charge rate at the end of charge and you, the, the vehicle might taper the charge off as the batteries warm up or whatever. Um, so uh, a way that we usually talk about this stuff is how many kilometres you can add in 10 minutes of charging, oh, okay. which, which tends to be a, you know, a useful thing that people can visualise. So what's so, the answer with 350 kilowatts? About 350 kilometres in right. 10 minutes of charging. So That's when extraordinary. You work, when you work through the usual sort of vehicle efficiencies and all the rest and, and go through the maths, um, it, yeah, it's about a kilometre per 10 minutes per kilowatt. So, yeah, at that point, it really is high-power charging it really can't be overstated. It, it really is a game-changer. Um, it's not just hype. That's the point where... You can now do long distance travel. You you stop for ten minutes and have a cup of coffee, and by the time you're back out again, your your vehicle is full. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And how many of those are we seeing around the around the place? Um, 
we're involved with a, a major rollout in Europe at the moment. That's is, the, is that through Ionity? Correct. Um, so I think we've supplied oh, it's about 100 charging sites to them at this point, and that's somewhere between four to six 350 kilowatt heads per site. Right. Um, and that certainly won't be the end of their rollout. So this is a, uh, a major network uh, funded by the German automotive industry, essentially. Um, and it's, it's eliminating the biggest issue with electric cars, or the biggest perceived issue with electric cars, which is people are worried about range. Yes. 350 kilometres in 10 minutes. Um, a lot of people would be very happy to do that at a petrol station. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's right. It's still probably slightly slower than uh, filling up with fuel, but not by much. And you don't have to stand there and hold the pump. So, mm. um, yeah, it, uh, it really is a game changer. That's fantastic. So presumably all your sort of fast charging stations are surrounded by damn good coffee shops and um, other things. Yeah, most of them are truck stops uh, so far. So whether they're good or not, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> you can certainly uh, you can certainly stop and get a coffee. Yeah, yeah. So um, you've got a 350 kilowatt charging stations, but not all vehicles, not all batteries and electric vehicles can actually charge at that rate, can they? Correct. So with DC charging, which is the equipment we make, the charger contains all the electronics and it has a direct connection into the battery pack of the vehicle. You're not going through any of the vehicle's electronics, but the entire process is controlled by the vehicle. Okay. So it's not possible to overcharge a car or charge it too fast or get it too hot or anything. Um, the vehicle will just ask for what it knows it can take. So you might buy a certain electric vehicle which has a capacity, say, to be charged at fifty at the rate of 50 kilowatts, so even if you go into one of your super-fast charging stations, it's not going to go any quicker, really. That's right. It will still okay. just sitting there. It'll, it will ask for 50 kilowatts, and that's what it will get. Okay, right, okay. So are we seeing gradually more and more electric vehicles moving to faster charging capabilities? Absolutely. The, there isn't any on the market yet that do 350 kilowatts, but I don't think they're that far away. The, the Porsche Taycan will be uh, presumably the first. Okay. But there's plenty of others that are gradually creeping up. Uh, if you look at, say, the new Ionic, I believe it's somewhere up around 80 to 100 kilowatts. Um, the iPace is a bit faster again. Um, and there's a host that we've been testing with that are coming out sometime this year that are up around the, the full high power charging Ooh. level. A host you've been um, testing with, so you can't re reveal their name. Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, we look forward to it, but it's interesting to note that. They... So, so how, how big will these charging stations go? Will they get up to 500 kilowatts uh, or something like that? Is there any point to get up that fast? Uh, well, you know, 640k RAM should be enough for anybody, right? Um, yes. <laughs> so um, ours is designed to be able to go up to 500, and mm -hmm. we've certainly had uh, one of the the vehicle OEMs asking for that power level. So I would expect within a few years, it probably will be up there. Uh, my guess is that's probably as fast as you'll see for a while in the light vehicle segment. Um, you, you don't really need that much faster. Yes, On the yeah. other hand, you're starting to see a lot of work now, particularly in the US um, with the heavy long haul truck market. And there it's, it's becoming reasonable now with the pro, progression in battery technology that you can have a, a long-haul semi-trailer um, that's electric and they're looking up into the several megawatt charging levels for those vehicles. Wow and is that the market that you're going to um, look to um, look to serve? 
Oh, certainly. It's something we're yeah. actively working on already. Right, right. That sounds pretty exciting. So what happens when you've actually got these little load centres with all these, you know, you might have four or six or however many charging stations in one spot and you've got up to 350 kilowatts and then when you've got the trucking um, charging stations talking about megawatts capacity. How does that sort of fit in with the grid? What's, what, what, what's, what's the thinking around that? So the Ionity sites are all fed from the medium voltage grid. That's either 10 kV or 20 kV in Europe, depending on the local utility. Um, they, they tend to have their own dedicated supply and dedicated pad mount transformer. So from that point of view, no problems. Um, the utility will just supply a connection to that site that has the capacity that the charging site needs. On the other hand, if you have, say, six 350-kilowatt charging stations, that gets you up to that's about 2.1 megawatts total. You don't need a grid feed remotely close to that. Um, typically, 40 or 50% of that is all you actually need, simply because you won't be in the situation commonly where you have all of the charging heads running at full power at the same mm. time. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, what's the other part of the market that you're looking to get into? I think I um, had a conversation with you um, after having a test drive of one of those Ionics, and uh, you were talking about the domestic market. Um, is that something you're looking to get into? It is. Um, uh, I'm slightly less clear on the time frame for that one. Um, mm -hmm. the, the very interesting thing that we see there for DC home charging is bi-directional capability. Ah. Um, if, if you're just doing charging only, unidirectional charging, then you might as well just have the, the standard AC type wall box, glorified PowerPoint. But yep. as soon as you can go bi-directional, then that opens up a host of interesting possibilities. And by bi-directional, just to make it clear for the listeners then, that's basically, you're not just charging the car from the grid, you're also using the grid to, sorry, use it, also using the car to charge the grid or sort of, you know, provide, could be all sorts of different facilities, sort of, you know, um, energy or, grid services or whatever. Absolutely. So uh, you, you can see a bit of publicity with this already. Several of the Japanese car manufacturers push this as a thing, um, usually for the disaster preparedness type narrative. That's um, interesting. So yeah. this is kind of like an emergency supply. Um, yeah, it is. It's. I mean, in theory, if you've got the, the power electronics there between the vehicle and your house, you've got a whole house uninterruptible power supply at that point. And one with significant capacity. It's very, people underestimate how much energy is in their vehicles. Um, that goes for a petrol vehicle, and but also for an EV. Uh, you look at, say, a, a high-end Tesla, you're up at 90 kilowatt hours. Uh, that's enough to run the average Australian house for something like four or five days, including the air conditioning. So it's a significant amount of energy. This is not, oh, we're going to ride through five minutes and the vehicle's flat we're talking days and so that opens up a lot of interesting possibilities that does now look i mean some vehicle as you say some japanese um, car manufacturers are looking at vehicle to grid and talked about it i guess what they've done is that they've got their mind over this idea that batteries can be um rapidly depleted or they could age more rapidly if they're actually used to vehicle in grid technology i think that's been kind of an issue issue for some manufacturers is that right is that, um, is yeah, that why something a bit, bit more conservative i think it is and this uh, the european oems uh, basically they're not really supporting bi-directional operation at this point in time but i think almost universally they're saying that they will 
mm. in the next generation of vehicles in right. three years' time or so. And so it's, uh, I'd say, as far as the home charging market goes, there's a little bit of time before it's mainstream, but you can yeah. certainly see which way, which way it's going. So tell me about some of these possibilities. I kind of interrupted you then in your sort of flow of thought about, you know, having this electric vehicle, this enormous battery capacity, which people don't really sort of appreciate, but probably will once they do get an electric vehicle. Um, what, what will they be able to do with it? I mean, some of this sounds a bit science fiction, but the reality is it's probably only a few years away. Um, uh, well, the, the whole house battery backup, for starters, is kind of the obvious one, but... It means that you've you've provided the option to significantly reduce your consumption from the grid. If you have a, a solar panel on your roof and your vehicle is plugged in, um, it can be using that solar power during the day and then running your house at night. Now, whether the economics of that stack up with the wear and tear on the battery, it's slightly probably too early to say, but you look at the rate of progress in in battery chemistry and battery lifestyle cycles, uh, this is going to happen. It's just a matter of, of when. Mm. It's certainly no longer a matter of if. Um, and if you combine that with a, a small, permanently installed battery pack in your house, you really don't need a particularly large battery pack to make a very, very big difference to the, to the consumption of energy from the grid. So it's... It, this opens up a, a lot of possibilities there. Um, typically, let's say you've put in a battery pack that covers 95% of the typical situation, but then it rains for a week and your solar doesn't produce any power and your little battery pack goes flat and you need to start consuming power from the grid. Well, in that situation, you, you basically have three options. You, you either have a much bigger battery pack, which probably isn't financially feasible, or you have a a connection to the grid, which isn't what you want to do if you're thinking of going off-grid, or you have a, a backup fossil fuel generator, and you know that's not that great either. But as soon as you have bi-directional charging, you now have a fourth option, which is you can go and charge your car somewhere else at, a say, a high-power charging petrol station-type location, and then come home and run your run your house from your car for that tiny you know few percent type situation few days a year where your little battery pack at home went flat wow this is really interesting because what you're outlining here is this sort of unique opportunity because not only could electric vehicles provide an enormous surface to the grid it actually could provide a most wonderful or a unique opportunity for many consumers to actually leave the grid yeah i think that's a possibility now uh, when you start looking at this worldwide it it makes a huge difference as to where you are. Uh, obviously, here in Australia, for the majority of Australia, you can easily put enough solar panels on the roof of your house to make up the average demand for your house. All that's yes. missing at this point is is enough storage, and yep. EVs are, are definitely one way to achieving that storage. Mm. But you go to other places in the world, well, it's it's not necessarily possible to put solar enough solar on the roof of your house, at which point this idea... It, it doesn't add up in the same way that it does here in Australia. Mm, but, mm. but it's certainly not just Australia where it's, you know, there's vast, vast portions of southern Europe, uh, the US, where it is entirely possible to generate enough average power from a solar panel to run a house. 
it certainly gives the utilities a lot to think about, particularly in Australia then, about how they're going to manage this. Because one, they've got to make the grid attractive enough for people to engage and stay on the grid and to then be able to use their electric vehicles as a resource. Um, and secondly, if they don't price it properly, then they could actually see people taking that opportunity to use the technology in the way they want. Yeah, I mean, there's a real risk here that uh, the utilities kind of get left behind here. People start putting the batteries in by themselves um, and do what they want. On, on the other hand, if the utilities get ahead of this, there's a distinct possibility here where they could be owning, operating the battery pack that's at the customer's house uh, and receiving a whole stack of benefits that help them operate their grid. Now, this isn't necessarily straightforward. There's a host of regulatory issues that need to be Absolutely. overcome. Um, uh, if, if the utility is operating these batteries, they're effectively a generator. At the moment, you can't really be a generator and a utility. So th there's a few issues that need to get sorted out, and some of these are, are quite major issues. But from a technical point of view, this is entirely possible. Also, for, yeah, well, that's interesting. From a technical point of view, quite possible. Um, for an equity point of view, it's actually quite important as well because the consumer seems to be getting, I mean, this is a completely different conversation, really, but the consumer is obviously getting screwed by the various sort of, you know, um, well, we're paying way too much for electricity. And um, some of the reason is regulatory hurdles and regulatory um, issues. Um, so this is, this, is, this is quite a fascinating thing. So, so how quickly do you think this might actually come in? So um, in, fa in fact, actually, just to interrupt that train of thought, I think I've seen a Bloomberg um, article or um, assessment talking about if you had a certain amount of penetration, I'm just trying to think what it was now, was it sort of 50% penetration of electric vehicles in Australia, you then got a resource with potential storage, the equivalent of Snowy 2.0, of the proposed Snowy 2.0. It's, it's an enormous resource that's there if you can work out how to harness it and make it available. And um, I'm just sort of thinking in Victoria last week, it would have been incredibly useful to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can do some quick back of the envelope calculations here in, in five minutes as, you know, typical EV is rapidly approaching 50 or 60 kilowatt hours. If you had 50% of the cars on the road in, in Australia, that's something like, I think, 6 million cars, um, you know, add it yes. up. It's, yes. it's, yeah, it's an extremely large distributed battery pack. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary. How quickly do you think that electric vehicles are going to get taken up by Australians now that we're starting to see more, um, you know, more more reasonably priced models? We're starting to see cars in the $50,000 range coming into the market this year. Firstly, with the Ionic, I think the Leaf will be around about that. The Tesla Model 3 supposedly, but probably won't for a while until they get the, the, the base model. But, but there's obviously some other vehicles coming down. And then the next step will follow after that, presumably to take the price down down to about $30,000 and even less. I'd certainly say by the time it's at that price, they're going to be a mainstream option. But as far as when that happens, I don't know, my uh, crystal ball's looking a little cloudy at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, uh, whatever the answer is, it's going to be slower than lots of other places in the world where we're a fair way behind the US and even further behind Europe at this point as far as electric vehicles go. But there's some interesting, interesting numbers that can certainly show what I would expect will happen, just not necessarily give an insight into when. 
And that's looking at the example in Norway. Um, they, this was several years ago, they put in quite an extensive subsidy on electric vehicles. It essentially brought the price of an electric vehicle down to the same price as the equivalent petrol car. And everybody started buying electric vehicles. Uh, it's, you know, um, the, I think the numbers for December were, uh, I think it was over 50% of new car sales were electric or at least a plug-in hybrid in Norway. And so that's, it's, I mean, that, that's distorted by the fact they've got the subsidy, but it's kind of not the point here. It, what it's showing is what will happen when the price of electric vehicles naturally drops down to the equivalent price of a petrol car. And at this point, that's no longer a, a technical problem. It's just a mass production problem. And car companies are pretty good at mass producing cars. So, you know, three years, four years, you're going to be at the point where an electric car is at the equivalent price of a petrol car and they're not going to be able to make electric cars fast enough. I mean, obviously, you know, you've driven one and most of your, most of the listeners of this podcast will know is once you've driven an electric car, you're not going to go back to a, to a petrol car. No, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I think also you see in in Norway there you're you're definitely getting a network effect going in because they are so widespread now. It's that everyone either you know their family owns one or a coworker owns one or a friend owns one, and so you seriously consider an electric car when you go to buy your next car. Where Absolutely. here in Australia, you might occasionally see a Tesla or a Leaf driving around on the road. It's not something that the typical person looking to buy the next car seriously thinks about. And uh, then even if you do think about it, there's hardly any cars here in Australia to buy. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, it was quite funny. We had um, a Swedish friend staying with us over the weekend and um, we were talking about electric vehicles in Norway and he said, well, look, the issue in Sweden is a lot of people in Sweden buy electric vehicles, but they actually sell them to their friends in Norway simply because they can make some money flicking <laughs> yeah. them over there. So, <laughs> so um, but um, yeah, no, they, they expect the uh, the price of electric vehicles to come down um, pretty quickly. So, yeah. So, look, t- tell me what's next for Tridium. What, what's what's exciting for the company and um, and what's, what gets you excited about the electric vehicle industry in next couple of years i think it's the high power charging without a doubt um, as seeing that become more of a widespread rollout is it, i mean it's exactly what i said before but it really is a game changer it it's it changes things in in two major areas which is the long distance travel type one like you're seeing with ionity in europe um, that's and that, a lot of that in, I mean, in practice, it's fantastic. It is exactly what you need, but a large chunk of it is also mental. People think they need to be able to drive long distances, even though most people don't. But without that infrastructure there, they wouldn't consider buying an electric car in the first place. I mean, once you've got it and you realise you, you can drive all the way across Europe if you want to, yes. people, people are using this infrastructure, but it, it's almost that it has to be there to get to make the sale in the first place. But then... The other major area here is uh, people that can't charge their electric car at home or possibly at work. Uh, so if you look inner city areas, I mean, imagine you live at you know Darlinghurst in Sydney or the middle of Paris or something, and you only can park on the street. You at the moment you can't really buy an EV because you can't charge it at home. You you can't run an extension cord across the footpath. Well, 
not legally anyway. So it kind of rules the option of an electric vehicle out for you. Whereas if you now have high power charging infrastructure, much more the, the petrol station model and the petrol station way of thinking, um, now you can buy an EV. You, you treat it exactly like you would have with a petrol car. You, you run it empty, you make a special trip somewhere, you spend 10 minutes charging it up, and then you're on your way for another week or two. Whereas at the moment, especially with the 50 kilowatt charging, that, that's not really an option. You'd have to be going somewhere and, and doing something for two hours while you charged your car. So you, you don't have that convenience that you'll have with, with the high power charging. Huh. And it, it also, once again, it's a mental thing, but um, certainly everyone who drives an EV at the moment, you realize how convenient it is not having to go to the equivalent of a petrol station, right? It's, uh, you don't drive an EV like a petrol car. You, you don't run it till it's empty and then go somewhere and fill it up. You treat it like your mobile phone. You, you come home at night, you spend five seconds plugging it in and it's full in the morning. What could be more convenient? Yeah. But yeah. you did have to have a, a mindset change when you bought that car. And for the early adopters, that's probably no problem at all. But for the average public, you don't want to have to have that conversation and convince people that they're going to have to change the way they act to buy an EV. And this is where high power charging is interesting because they're used to that petrol station mindset and now they can just keep doing exactly the same thing. Interesting stuff. What um, there's a lot of discussion about policy and what needs to be done in Australia to um, to get this market going. Do we just wait for the prices to come down naturally? Do we need to invest in more infrastructure? Do you guys have a wish list of you know policy initiatives that um, that should be done? Well, not that we're biased, but uh, we, we've seen overseas that you uh, roll out the charging infrastructure and people start buying cars. So mm. I I would expect that's that's the key thing here and. I see with the, the New South Wales uh, policy that was released uh, a week or two ago, they, they had quite a strong emphasis on getting that charging infrastructure deployed. And I'm expecting we're going to see some of that too from the federal as we go into a federal election campaign. I know that um, both sides of politics have been looking at this quite seriously. So we might see some um, initiatives on, on that line as well. Yeah, you never know. But then uh, you can have... You can have so the thing with charging infrastructure here in Australia, especially, is, I mean, there's barely any cars at the moment, but it it's it's symbolic, it's it's publicity more than anything else. It's that you see the the average petrol or diesel vehicle driving driver right now sees this infrastructure being deployed and realizes that electric cars are a serious option. It's it's vitally important from a publicity point of view that this infrastructure is seen being deployed. Mm. Um, it really it really is a big deal. And so you have examples like the, the EV superhighway that the Queensland government has, uh, Brisbane to Cairns, uh, the big rollout NRMA is doing in New South Wales at the moment. Um, this, stuff, this stuff really matters. Um, are they the world's best charging networks? Maybe, maybe not, but it doesn't actually matter. The, the important thing is that it's it's being rolled out and people see it being rolled out. Mm. What about autonomous vehicles? Does that change the game for you guys in any way? Because that may change the way that cars are used and the way the cars are charged, um, et cetera, et cetera. Does that, um, do you guys spend much time thinking about that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's really hard to say at this point. Um, you, you could see 
multiple options for how autonomous vehicles might charge is you can easily see something that, you know, the vehicle's autonomous, so it doesn't involve a human in anything else it does. Why involve a human in the charging? And therefore, something like wireless charging uh, would be seen as quite a good fit. But that generally is a fairly slow process. So the other option there would be something along the lines of high power charging. Um, is it going to be with a robotic connector? Or if you're talking fleets of autonomous vehicles, they're probably going to go back to some central location just to get cleaned and tidied up, at which point the person doing that can plug a charging plug in while they're doing it. So uh, it could go either way there. It's, um, it's really hard to say. So that, that basically means then for whatever happens, um, uh, those cars need to be charged. So that's okay for you guys. I think so. Um, and you see a similar thing with the work that we're involved with, with the heavy vehicles. Um, there is no connector standard at this point. That's one of the things we're involved with is working out what that connector is going to be. Is it going to be a brand new style of connector just for heavy trucks and buses? Or is it going to be multiple plugs of the existing high power charging? Or is it going to be a, a catenary um, type operation on the top of the vehicle? At this point, it's completely unclear. But in some ways, from Tritium's point of view, we, we don't really care. Um, we'll work with whatever the standard turns out to be. And the standard for you is just really the shape of the plug or the shape of the socket, or is it a bit more complex than that? Uh, it's a bit more complex than that, with, especially with the high-power charging. The, um, uh, the plug on high-power charger is backwards compatible with the 50-kilowatt stuff, so you can plug your 50-kilowatt vehicle into a high-power charger. But how are they getting almost 500 kilowatts down the same cable that previously used to do 50? And the answer is it's a liquid-cooled charging cable. So mm -hmm. there is some fairly significant engineering um, and design goes into that part of it as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, hmm. it's whatever the standard turns out to be, then that's what we'll interoperate with. Hmm. Good stuff. Look, James, um, James Kennedy from Tritium. Um, look, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating getting um, the insight into your company, its history, what it's doing, and, um, and where you think this um, might actually lead us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Good on you. Thanks, James. And um, look, thanks also to our sponsor, uh, Zero Mo. Uh, thanks, everyone out there listening. And we'll be back again next week with another podcast from The Driven. Bye for now. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Zero Mo, the non-profit initiative that supports battery electric alternatives for lawn and gardening maintenance. Zero Mo helps transition to cleaner and quieter garden power tools and electric vehicles powered by 100% renewable energy. Visit zeromo.com.au and find out how you can make the switch to zero emission, petrol-free lawn and garden maintenance.